Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful for you. Um, what a beautiful day. What a glorious day this is. And Lord, what a day to remember the power that is of who you are. Lord, thank you for what the resurrection means, Lord, and how um, Christianity would mean nothing without it. Lord, would you please speak to us, Jesus? Would you please... Um, let us know what your word wants to say, what you want to say to us as a church about this. I pray that you would equip me to guide us through this scripture. You know I wasn't able to um, stick in there with you last night. Lord, I trust you anyway. You're here, and you're gonna walk through this with us, and I, I know that. You're so good. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, this is, we're going to read it through Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like everybody to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine this, because this is a very imaginative prophecy that demands your imagination. So close your eyes and imagine everything I'm going to read to you. Deep breath. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone, bone to bone. And as I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, oh, breathe, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open the graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, so I will do it, declares the Lord. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You can open your mind. How was that? How was that? Amazing, right? Um, Ezekiel was a prophet um, in exile. He was speaking to the children of Israel as they were exiled in a foreign land in the land of Babylon after their land had been ruined by the Babylonians, desecrated by the Babylonians, and they had been carried captive off to Babylon. Um, And this very famous prophecy, it's a very famous passage in Scripture that Ezekiel gives, um, he gives them a future hope that would sustain their present struggles in really a living hell, in a foreign land. Uh, and I want to say that, that again because that's, that's what this is. It's a future hope that gives them present strength. That's what the resurrection is. It's a future hope that gives us present strength to go through what we're going through. But it goes much deeper than their current situation. Um, this, prophecy is, this prophecy has it all. It's got everything. It's got everything the Bible has to say. It is the redemptive story of the Bible. If you want to know a snapshot of the entirety of what the Bible is saying is the story of mankind and the story of redemption, it's right here. It's all right here in Ezekiel 37. It's got it all. It describes the true depth of the problem of, of, of being lost, what the, what the depth of the problem of mankind is, that we're dead. It tells us why, the reasons behind it. It shows us what the only solution is, the only solution to the world that we're in, to the chaos and death that we feel, the only solution is a, a, a renewing of life, a resurrection, and it tells us how we get it. This passage has got it all. Um, so this morning, that's what we're going to learn. We're going to talk about um, the true depth of the problem, how the Bible describes death. You, you, know, you have to talk about death if you're going to talk about life. You just have to because that's... Then we're putting in a story. If we isolate one of the two, we're talking about a doctrine. But you talk about both, and we're, now we're talking about a story. How did death come to be? And what does life really mean? It also will show us, show us what real life truly is, and it also will tell us how we get to have it. Those are the three points. Okay, number one, this describes the true depth of the problem and why it is the way it is. It's a big problem to say the least. You can see it in, the, in his vision. The vision is a valley filled with bones, but not, eat, not, not with corpses, not with skeletons, but dry bones. In other words, they've been there for a while. They've been dead for a long time. So it's a picture of absolute hopelessness. Um. And God tells them what it, God tells Ezekiel what it means in verse eleven. He says to them, "Son of," he says to Ezekiel, "Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, here's what they say: Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off." So, in the immediate context, this is a picture of the na- of the national plight of Israel. In the immediate context, their homeland had been invaded. It's okay. Hey, it, it always happens. You're in good company. Um, their homeland had been invaded. 
They've been decimated by Babylon. Um, the temple, Solomon's temple, that represents the presence of God, right? It represents the presence of God there in Israel with his people. That had now been destroyed. Imagine what that would mean. Imagine what that would mean. And now they'd been carried away from their home, from their family, from their friends, from everything familiar, and they've been carried away as slaves to this world power in Babylon. To them, it's over. Hope is lost. Imagine, um, since, it's, since it's in the news right now, just to, to get something that hits us, imagine if, if Russia was, was out on the coast and they had somehow invaded America successfully and they toppled our government, they crippled our defenses, and they ripped you away from your children, from your families, from your friends, from everything familiar, and you went all over, you were scattered all over the world to maybe never see your friends and family ever again. Anything familiar, a new language, a new way of thinking, a new kind of government, a new culture, your money's gone, everything's gone, you're, now you do what you're told, you don't have any dreams anymore. Imagine that scenario. That's what, that's what historically happened to these people. They were taken away from Israel and taken to Babylon and scattered all over the world. And at this point, they're thinking, that's it. They were completely scattered. Therefore, within a few generations, it's, it's likely that they will cease to be a nation at all. They'll cease to be a people. This is it for them. It's hopeless. And to make things even more dramatic... Their, which is, I think, even more dramatic than ours, their identity as a nation was wrapped up, all kind of wrapped around a higher purpose of their calling for, uh, with God. Remember why Israel became a nation in Genesis chapter 12, when God appeared to their ancestor Abraham, God specifically said that their descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky, so they would be a nation, and he would bless them so that the world would be blessed. That's the whole purpose of the nation of Israel. I'm choosing you to bless everyone else. I'm choosing you to bless you. I'm going to gather you. You're going to be this powerful priest nation that through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. So their national identity is wrapped up in this incredible cosmic calling at the same time. And here they are, Away from that, their temple's been decimated. I mean, think what this means. They're thinking, we have really lost it. All hope is lost. This is not like we're a corpse or we're, we have a faint pulse. We are bones. We are dry bones. There's no hope for us. Can we live again? They would resound, no. We're done. It's curtains. It's over. And that's, wh that's why they put their hope in being a nation. They put their hope in being a nation because being a nation also represented their, their identity, their hope, and their calling. It was very important that they be a nation because God called them to be a nation for a much bigger person. Imagine what it would be, to be, what it would, imagine what it would be like. In their perspective, all was lost. Now, how did it come to this? How did it, how did it get to this place? You know, you, you, you know, isn't that the question we ask ourselves in, in the wake of a tragedy? How did it come to this? What happened to make this happen? Well, the ch I, would, I will tell you the children of Israel knew what happened. They tell us. Uh, look at the, the phrase that God puts in their mouth in verse 11. It's, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, 
And here's the phrase I want you to pay really close attention to. We are indeed, here's the phrase, cut off. Cut off is a hyperlink phrase. It's a phrase that's very familiar throughout the Old Testament. It's what scholars call a covenant phrase. Uh, Well, more specifically, it's a covenant curse phrase. They're saying basically that we broke covenant with God, therefore we are now cut off from him. That phrase is very, very important. Um, When God delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them together at Mount Sinai, the Bible records that God cut a solemn covenant with his people, very much like a marriage ceremony. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. I want you to do this, and I'm going to do this, and you can do this and do this, and I'll do this and do this. And they said at the Mount of, of Mount Sinai, they said, basically, I do. We will. All that the Lord says, we will do. And it was this amazing covenant that if you, if, if you follow my commands, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. But if you break these things, there will come a curse from leaving the provision of my hand. Let me read it to you, actually. This is very the, one of the last things that Moses ever said to uh, the nation of Israel was to remind them of this. Let's see, oops. No, I don't want to call my father-in-law. See, let me read this to you here. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 28. You can also find it in um, Leviticus chapter 26. I'll just read a little bit of it to you here. But you'll get the idea. Look at Moses is telling them to. Uh, telling them here. He says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. In other words, this is, this is what will happen if you remain, remain faithful to me and stay in my provision. Um, and all these blessings shall come upon you, and, will, and these blessings will overtake you. You'll be, I love that phrase, you'll be overtaken with blessing. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed you will be in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb. Blessed will be the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle. The increase of your herds and the young of your flocks. Blessed will be the basket in your your kneading bowl. Blessed you will be when you come in. Blessed you will be when you come out. The Lord will cause all your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall, come, uh, they shall come out against you in one way, but they'll flee in seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing um, on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he shall bless you. And it goes on and on and on. The Lord will open to you good treasury, the heavens, to give you rain, um, to water your crops. The Lord will make, you, uh, will make you the head and not the tail, and on and on it goes. But the minor key comes in. This is very prophetic. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your baskets and kneading bowls be. Cursed shall the fruit of your womb be and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and your young and your flock. Cursed shall all of it be. The Lord will send, you, uh, will send on you curses of confusion and frustration. Now remember, this is the generation that came out of Egypt. They understood. They saw with their own eyes what, what the cursings of God looked like. When God brought the curses upon Egypt, and he's saying, hey, I'll bring that upon you. Okay? 
The Lord will make pestilence to stick to you. The Lord will strike you. And it goes on. The Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, and you shall flee seven ways. Um, And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And he goes on to say, and you'll be carried away into other nations. You'll be scattered upon the earth. This is, this is not a, a shock, to it, or nor should it be. This is, uh, if you want to understand the major prophets, it's Deuteronomy 28 on repeat. Isaiah brings, uh, basically brings a, um, a fork in the road to the people of Israel. If you come back, you'll enter back into the, into the covenant and you'll be blessed. If you keep going the way you're going in this land, you'll be cursed. They were worshiping the idols of the Canaanites. Remember, they were, they were called as a nation to go into Canaan and to bless the land, cast out the idols, make it a, a place dedicated to Yahweh, and from that land, the whole earth would be blessed. Instead, they went into the land. They allowed the idols and the, the false worship of the land to, to be influence them. And they gave their hearts to these false gods and these false idols, and they began, in God's view, idolatry was adultery before him. That's where you get the idea of Hosea. Do you remember the prophet Hosea? Where God told Hosea, okay, I want you to prophesy, but Hosea, I'm going to have you prophesy with your life. You're going to mirror my life. I want you to go out and marry a prostitute, because that's what it's like for me. I've married a wife in Israel that will not stay faithful to me. I'm loving a woman that will not love me back. And he said, Hosea, if you want to understand what it's like to be me, if you just want a dim hint of what it's like to be me, this is what you've got to experience. And I want you to have children with her. Remember, one of the children he, he named, literally named not mine, because she was sleeping around with other people, Gomer, getting pregnant with other people. Chronic, chronic failure, chronic disobedience. This is the message of the major prophets. Jeremiah especially. Jeremiah, you see Deuteronomy language, Deuteronomy 18, Levitical language, all throughout the book of Jeremiah. In other words, this should not be a surprise to the nation of Israel. This is what's been said since Moses. If you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, and if you do these other things, these things will happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happening. Can you imagine Jeremiah? There he is in Israel, Babylon surrounding them, and the the leaders of of, uh, Jerusalem are saying, stand and fight, be strong, be courageous. And there's Jeremiah. He stands up and says, actually, whoever surrenders to Babylon, they're the ones that are going to live and God's going to take care of them. Anyone who, who fights, can you imagine that? If Russia was invading and, and, and uh, our president was saying, we need all hands on deck, stand up and fight. And I stood up and said, actually, in the name of the Lord, we should just surrender and go to Russia now. Would I be the most popular man on the planet? No. They put Jeremiah in a well. They beat him. They tried to kill him. They eventually did. They drug him to uh, Egypt along, along with them. It was an information war. They had false prophets standing up saying, go to fight and God will give you victory. And Jeremiah was like, no, that's actually not how it's going to be. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. It wasn't just an inkling. It wasn't just a gut feeling that he had. He had the word of God. Leviticus 26. Deuteronomy 28. This is what's going to happen. It's written right there. If you don't 
stay in covenant, if you break the covenant, you are in line for a curse. And this is what Babylon's here to do. Now, this is a very familiar story. Um, If you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you will know that we've been saying that the Bible is a type of literature. It's a type of meditative literature. And specifically, it's a type of, it's a recursive, progressive literature. Recursive means it brings the same things up over and over again. It's recursive. Progressive means that every time it does bring up the same theme or same story over again, it progresses the story or the theme or gives more meaning to it. This, me, this story, Ezekiel 4, uh, 37, is on repeat. Think, of, think with me back to Genesis. There, not only were Adam and Eve the progenitors of the human race, but they were chosen as the representative heads of the entire human race. Okay? That is, that means they represented mankind to God, and they were called by God. Do you remember what they were called to do? To represent God to the world. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? To go out, to be fruitful and multiply. That means have children. And go out into the world and subdue it. In other words, Adam and Eve were to be in God's presence and to raise a God-honoring generation that would go out and bring the rule of God to every corner of the earth. That was their, that was their purpose. That was their, as the heads of the human race, that's what they were called to do. And it gets pretty evident pretty quick that Adam and Eve were even called to function as kind of the proto-priests, the first priests. They were functioning as, as facilitating worship between God and his creation. How do I get that? Well, the, the most stunning evidence that I can find is in Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man, it says, and put him in the Garden of Eden to both work it and to keep it. Those two words there, to work and to keep, are two words that are almost only exclusively used throughout the rest of the Old Testament to describe the priest job in the Levitical priesthood, to worship God, to tend the temple, and to worship it. Um, there's a lot of scriptures I could tell you to show you this, but I'll just take, tell you, show you one. In Numbers chapter 3, 7 through 10, it says, They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. This is talking about the priests. As they minister, that's the same word as work in Genesis chapter 2, when they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard, that's the same word as keep, they shall guard it and all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites and Aaron his sons, and they will be wholly given among all the people. In other words, the Levites and Aaron's sons were chosen to represent God to the people and the people to God at this temple, this tabernacle in the wilderness. By the way, the tabernacle that that Moses was instructed to make it like Eden. It's decorated, it's it's Edenic. It's even furnished with two um, cherubim guarding the presence of God. That tells us that the Garden of Eden is not just, the Garden of Eden is not just a garden, it's a garden temple. 
That's what I'm trying to tell you. In fact, Ezekiel, later in Ezekiel chapter 6, Ezekiel will tell us this, that the Garden of Eden was like a temple on a mountain, and the four rivers uh, flowed from that and gave, gave water to the, rest of the, to the rest of the earth. So Adam and Eve are the proto-priests. They're the priests chosen to represent the entirety of the human race and to dwell in the presence of God, sending out God-honoring generation into all the earth, into the whole of creation, so that all of creation would come under the rule of Eden, the rule of God. But you know what happens. It didn't turn out that way, did it? That's not the way it went. Things didn't work out that way. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and because they were both the progenitors of the human race and the representative heads, and by the way, in the Bible, the head can always act for the whole. It's not like an individualistic thing here where we think what I do doesn't matter. No, in the Bible, the head acts for the whole. Very important. And because of all of this, this disastrous consequence came upon them. What's the word I'm looking for? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Death happens. Death. And death spreads to the world. The Bible does not define death in mere scientific empirical terms. It's, that's too reductionistic for the Bible. The Bible will use the idea of death to talk about something much bigger. In the Bible, death is resp- there is a capital D death that's responsible for all the other deaths underneath of it. Um, let me read to you chapter uh, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And how does the Bible describe the death that happens when they eat the forbidden fruit? I'll read it to you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, I want you to pay, I'm going to ask you some questions here. When the woman saw that the, that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? How is death described here? What do humans do? They eat the fruit, and there is death here, but not scientifically. What's the first thing that happens here? Separation, yeah. They hide. For the first time, death is described as a separation from God, a breach in a relationship where they know there's something to be ashamed of and they hide. Mankind hides. What's God do? He comes. That's right. From the very beginning, from the, very be- from the first pages of your Bible, mankind sins and runs, gets away from God, and God is seen as coming. Where are you? 
I'm coming to provide a solution. Now, what does God do in the midst of such severe betrayal? In the context of such severe betrayal and sin, he comes and he makes this promise. And it's a promise to deal with the real culprit here, the real enemy here. He says, I will put enmity. He's talking to the snake, Nahash. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Everything the Bible has to say about anything is in the first three chapters of Genesis, but just in seed form. This is about Jesus. So, man hides. God comes and declares the seeds of a redemptive plan to win over, the, over death and the adversary that is of his people. But this idea of death as being exiled from God's presence, it's confirmed at the end of the chapter. At the end of the chapter, God says, Therefore the Lord sent, sent him out from the garden, that's Adam and Eve, um, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove out the man east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. That is death. It is separ- It is exile. It really is. And in our story in Ezekiel, we see this happening again, except with progressive power. This story has all the same elements of the Garden of Eden drama in, in Ezekiel. God, through Abraham, has chosen the nation of Israel, just like God chose, chose Adam. He tries again through the nation of Israel. Adam was called to be a priest. Adam and Eve were called to be priests in the garden. The nation of Israel is called to be a nation priest, so to speak, to the entire world. They're to be blessed by dwelling in the very presence of Yahweh. That's the whole point of putting the tabernacle there. That's the whole point of the sacrificial system so that they can come into God's presence. If you read through Exodus, Leviticus, you'll see it over and over again. God says all of these rules and all of these things and all of these ceremonies and all of these traditions and all this blood and all this sacrifice so that I may dwell with you, so that I may dwell with you, so that I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a return to Eden. You are to be a nation in my presence so that you can go out and bless the world. That's the whole point. And just like Adam and Eve with the tree of good and evil, they were also given a a choice with the covenant with the Deuteronomic Covenant, Deuteronomy 18. In another place, God says, Behold, this day I've, I've given you a choice. I've put before you life and death. Choose life. I've put before you life and death. Choose life. It's, it's the tree on repeat. It's the tree on repeat. Over and over again. What do you think they chose? Death. That's what Babylon represents. That's what Egypt represented. An exile into Egypt, into slavery, surrounded by the waters of chaos. The Nile there. Literally, the Nile in chapter 2 and the Red Sea in chapter 15. Surrounded by the, just like Genesis chapter 1. Just like Noah, the waters of chaos. God bringing them out of that. And, here, and bringing them into a new land with, a, with his presence. A return to Eden, the promised land, and here they are again. 
They make the wrong choice. They serve other gods. They get to choose what's good, right, true, and beautiful. And what happens again? Death. God brings in Babylon, levels it out, and burns down the temple. They're dried up bones. There's no way this this repeating, this recursive, progressive pattern in the Bible is an accident. This is the human story. So here in this text, the picture of physical death is representing a much bigger idea of death. Do you see that? Just like physical death, you know you weren't meant to die. You know you were meant to live. It is unnatural for us to be exiled from God. It's unnatural for us to be cut off from the land of the living. Every one of us, when we think about death, we, we quickly try to think about something else. Why? Because we know it's not right. Little Simba tells Mufasa, I don't understand, Dad, the circle of life. And the big lion says, son, we eat the antelope. And then we die and we fertilize the grass and the antelope eat the grass. Your fertilizer. That's what that means. Does that give you hope? Of course not. We know. There's, our culture will say, well, death is our friend. You know, it's the circle of life. It's our friend. And I'll tell you what. The Bible says death is the enemy. It's a damn lie that it's your friend. It really is. And we know it. We know it. In our bones, we know it. Our culture especially knows it. We try to avoid death as much as we can. It's just not right. You know you weren't meant to die. Death is wrong. We tend to live our lives as if we're never going to die. Have you noticed? We tend to live our lives as if death is not even a possibility. Whenever, but whenever we're in a situation where we admit the fact that death is inevitable, in fact, we admit the fact that death is imminent. It's coming for everyone. All of us. We're going to face, think about that for a second. We're all going to face that moment. At that point, we have, you know, a lot of people that have faced death will say, what do they say? They say, well, I had, I had a priority check. I thought about all the things that really mattered and the things that didn't matter. All the things that didn't matter, that I thought mattered, I knew meant nothing. All the things I was so worried about or striving for or living for, death took that away. Because that's what death does. It takes our hope. And if our hope is founded on anything that death can take away, well, then it'll take your hope as well. So, here, the Bible describes death as being cut off from the land of the living. There's our phrase again. Cut off from the land of the living or from the presence of God. And that describes not just Israel, but the entire human race. We're all in exile, you guys, from our true home. And we experience it every day. Anytime somebody says, or anytime you say to yourself, if I could just, then I could live the way I was supposed to live. What are you saying? You're saying, I'm cut off from something I know I should have. If I could just, I know I was meant to run this fast, or I know I was meant, if I could just jump that high, if I, if I could just sing this good, I, I have it in my heart to sing as good as Julie or as Mike or as somebody else, but I just can't. You know what you're saying? 
You're saying, I'm cut off from something that I, I want. You intuitively know you want it. If I could just then, if I could just get this, you're, there's something stopping us from, from realizing who we're supposed to be. You know what you're saying? You're saying, you're dead. You're feeling death in that moment. Your limitations equal your death. We feel it every day. We all struggle against death every day. In other words, there's something in all of us telling us that we're meant for so much more. We're meant for more. Something is telling us that we're not quite what we know we ought to be. We're separated from the kind of life we want, from the kind of person that we want to be, from the kind of life we want to have. We're in exile. And at some point, we realize how bad it is. It's not money. Because when we get money, we, we blow it too. And this, that's, what, you know, that's what the prophet is saying to Israel. He's saying, look, you, it's not the land. You had the land. And look what you did. You had, the, you had it all. You had it all. God gave you everything. He gave you his presence. He gave you his blessing. He gave you prominence in the land. He gave you his word. And you, look what you did. You lost it. It's the same with us. Whatever that thing is or those people are or those things are that you say, if I just then, they wouldn't do it. At some point, you got to realize you're not just dead. You're really dead. Or we reach to the, we, we reach to the top of the ladder and we're still not satisfied. We get to the top of our career and, and yet we're so in agony and so so tormented that we walk up on stage and slap Chris Rock in the face right before reading, reaching the top award of, of his career. We're all like that. We have it, and yet we're so miserable. We want more. At some point, we realize I'm not just dead. I'm really dead. My bones are dry. There's no hope in anything that this world can produce because death can take this stuff away. And see, that's what God is showing Israel here. He's saying there's a bigger exile than just being exiled from your land. You've been exiled from me because of your sin. You have the land and you still weren't happy. Your sin wasn't satisfied. Jonathan Edwards said, I've never seen a fire that's, that's like satisfied with enough wood. That's what he talked about sin. I've never seen a fire that says, good, that's enough wood for now. No, it's a raging, wants more, 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 more. So, we're all in the valley of the dry bones. That's where we're at. We live in a world that's just not, that's cursed. So what is true resurrection then? Well, look at verse 9. It says, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, to the, to the, to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, so, and he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed 
cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O, o my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in, in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, and I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Notice that he says that he will bring them in again to their own land, but that's not anything new. They've been in the land before, but there is something new here. What's new about this, that God says, hey, by the way, not only I will bring you into the land, but there will be a new temple. Did you notice what the new temple was in in the scripture? He says, I will put my spirit within you. I'm going to give you something so much more than land and a temple. I am now going to dwell in you, sinful, betraying, wretched Israel that you are. It's a way bigger promise than just land or a temple. Ezekiel 36 actually gives us some more insight into what it means to have the Spirit, God's presence dwelling in you. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will be, will, will be put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land and and uh, that I gave to your fathers. And here's our phrase: You will be my people, and I will be your God. In other words, I will dwell with you, and I will dwell in you. You become the temple. And then Jesus echoes all of this in John chapter three when he's talking to Nicodemus. It's the, it's Ezekiel words in John chapter three. Jesus said to Nicodemus, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." And Nicodemus asked a good question. He said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, it's Ezekiel 36, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is a flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And here's our third metaphor, the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't, know, you don't know where it's coming from. It's Ezekiel 36 and 37 language. That's why he's saying to Nicodemus, don't you, you're a teacher of the law. You should know this. This is Ezekiel. This is what he was talking about. Basically, what this means is that before you can be physically resurrected at the end of time, you must be spiritually resurrected right now. God's presence comes and dwells in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you're not a Christian. It's that simple equation. If you're a Christian, you have been resurrected with the Spirit of God. Paul said the old you has been crucified with Christ, and there's a new, a new man, a new Imago Dei, a new image bearer inside of you that's growing like a baby. A child, when they're born, they have all this, but they're new, but they're not complete. They have all this potential, and they're going to grow. That's, what's, that's the Christian life. When you were born again, God put a new 
imago Dei in you, a new image in you after the image of Christ, Colossians tells us. And Corinthians tells us that, he, that that image is being renewed day by day in the knowledge of him who created him, uh, the knowledge of Jesus. You're growing just like a child grows into the full potential of who, who he or she is. You are growing slowly but surely into, in this organic life power into the full potential of who you will be into the glory of Christ. That's all because of the resurrection. That's all because Jesus did that and went before us. Basically, he's saying you've got to be resurrected first before you can be... Resurrection is a staggered event. It happened in Jesus, and it's still happening now in you right now. Resurrection is happening progressively in you through sanctification. As you're learning new ways of thinking, as you're putting away old habits... What is new birth? Well, it means you believe. You trust in God's salvation. And when you do, in in comes the Spirit of Christ and there's spiritual resurrection that happens within you. How is it possible? It begs the question, how is it possible? After all, if you've read anything from Leviticus, Exodus, all of the, the prescriptions and things that the priests have to do to be clean enough, to be right enough, to be good enough to come before the presence of God. You know, it's, if you've read through Leviticus, it's a hard read because of all the restrictions and prohibitions and ways to, that they need to ritually cleanse themselves and the ways they sacrifice animals and on and on it goes. It's got to be just right. And Why? so that I can dwell with you and you with me. That's the whole reason for it all, that God can be with his people again, a return to Eden. And now we see that God's spirit comes in, is gonna, we're going to be the temple. How is that possible? Only because, only because of Jesus. Only if an innocent one pays the covenant curse vicariously for you. Here's the Here's the whole point. This is what the emblems mean. Jesus was cut off from God for all of your going astray, from all of your rebellion, from all of your sin, from all of my sin. Jesus was cut all the worst. The, you know what we talked about with Israel? Chronic disobedience. Remember we talked about Hosea married to a woman who wouldn't love him back? That's us, by the way. We're Gomer. Hosea is God in the picture. We don't, it's not that you've just gone away once or twice or three times or four times. We are chronic sinners. You understand that? Chronically dead. And the only way it works is if Jesus came and took the covenant curse. He was cut off in our place. Only if an innocent one. And this is what this is what the prophets are getting at. Let me, close your eyes again. Take a deep breath. And listen. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the covenant curse of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered, here it is, here's our phrase, He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people. He was cut off for you and for me. Cut off so that we don't ever have to say, I'm cut off. Cut off so that we can be brought back, so that we can actually be the temples of God. His spirit can come in us because Jesus was cut off. Remember his famous words on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somehow, mysteriously, in the unity of of the Trinity, Jesus decided he voluntarily chose to be cut off from the relationship of the Father so that you and I could be grafted in so that we could have perfect community, communion with him, no matter what land we're in, no matter what we face, no matter what the death is around us. There is no hope apart from this. This is a hope that death cannot take away, so that Paul can, can be so smug and say, death, where is your sting? How do you, do, how do you say something like that? We avoid it. Paul said, death, where, where is your sting? Where is your victory? I have something that death can't take away. And that's what I'm telling you. There's a future hope that gives you current strength. If you put your hope in anything that this life can take away, then your hope will be destroyed. Even good things like your children, your family, those are great, beautiful things. But death can take those things away. God forbid, but he can. And therefore, when that leaves, your hope leaves too. If your hope is in your body, if your hope is in your health, that can go. Only the resurrection invites us to put our hope, to to deposit our hope into an account that cannot be touched, that this life can't strip away. That even when our body is wrecked and our careers are gone and our talents have dried up and someone's better and other people are are more successful than us or whatever it might be, we can stand firm and we can say, death, where is your sting? How do we get it? Well, you have to hear it. Last point. How did this happen? Notice that God didn't 
do that over the valley? He could have, obviously. But what, how did he choose to do it? He told a preacher to preach to dry bones. We preachers, we know what it's like to preach to people that aren't listening, but this is ridiculous. Preach to dry bones. Oh, my gosh. But he uses, in other words, the power of the resurrection is in the vehicle of the spoken word. It's in the vehicle of the word of God. You have to hear him call to you, and you need to respond. If you hear God calling your voice, um, respond to it. Romans chapter 10 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God. God gives us ability, even in our death, to hear, to put life within us, a desire for life. If you even have a desire for life, if someone even has a desire, which everyone does, everyone wants those things, then they're eligible to hear the voice of God. Resurrection is not God's zapping you and just giving you a better life. That's not it. No, you have to hear what the word of God says. Remember Nicodemus. Remember what he said? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would never die but have everlasting life. Hear the word and believe. And what dry bones is God asking you to speak to in your life? To preach at in your life. We know that David preached to himself. He said, oh my soul, why are you cast down? Put your hope in God, oh my soul. Remember all of his promises, oh my soul. What is he doing? He's preaching to the dry bones in his own life, so to speak, to go with the, with the metaphor here. What are the things in your life that you regard as hopeless? Again, we're not talking about things that you might have a, have a small shot or a Hail Mary at. They might come out all well. I'm talking about the things that are hopeless. The broken relationships that you think are gone, hopeless. The bridges that are completely burnt. The chances that you've given up on a long time ago. What are those things that you need to preach to? Or who are the people that you regard as a lost cause that would never hear, would never believe? I'll tell you what, everyone wants life. Everyone wants life. They just need, but how, but how will they hear without someone that's sent? You are people of the resurrection. And the resurrection is, is not supposed to stay with you. It's supposed to go out. This is the great commission to all the corners of the earth. We're back to the Garden of Eden. You are the new Adams and Eves. You're the new priest nation. Peter said that. You are a holy priesthood, a royal nation. That's a, that's a nod back to the very, very, very beginning. Genesis 12 with Abraham. I'm going to make a nation that's going to be priests, that's going to bring the whole world blessing. And that's a nod back. Remember, it's regressive, recursive progressive. We can trace it back to Adam. Go into all the earth. Subdue it. Bring it under the rule, the good rule and blessing of God. That's what your calling is as the people of the resurrection. You're the new Adams. You're the new Eves. Following the last Adam, the ultimate Adam, Jesus who's gone before us. We follow him into all the earth, into all the world, into Seattle, into our families, and we preach to those dead bones 
there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. In a, in, is there hope in America? Yeah, America. The No. <laughs> no. Because death can take that. Okay, there's hope in my 401k and my, 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 my securities. No, it's good to have those things. Sure, it's wise to have those things, but don't put your hope in them. It's tax season. The government can take stuff away, right? That's not where our hope is. Hope in my family? Oh, your family's awesome. It's good. Oh, but gosh, any parent in here knows Raising kids is fraught with danger, filled with heartache, an ongoing sense of goodbye. No, not there. Mm-mm. You see what I'm saying? Hope is in a resurrection that will never go away. And some, that somehow at the end of the age, all the should-have-beens will be. I don't know how that works. But that's what the Bible promises, that somehow all the should-have-beens will somehow be. That life will actually retro and wash backwards over death, making it all happen the way it should have been. And yet even better because of the, the heartache and the suffering that it was. How does that work? I don't know, but that's the promise. And there is no hope apart from that. There is no legislation that can help apart from that. There's no money or dollar amount that can solve homelessness in Seattle apart from a hope and a resurrection. There's nothing like that that can solve the drug epidemic without the resurrection. You see that? But the resurrection infused with those things? Oh, man. Preach to dry bones. Amen? Amen.